Welcome to the Metal Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We just sat down with Logan Burchett, who is the co-founder and COO of Forecaster. Forecaster is helping startups manage and project their finances in the early stages of their business, which is hard for a lot of founders given that they're not you know, financially – a lot of them just don't have any background in finance. And so once they start raising money or needing those projections, it's pretty hard for a founder to, to, to create that. And so Forecaster is, is helping them do that out of the box with a web application. He and his team have a lot of experience uh, with this topic given that uh, he and his co-founder, Stephen – uh, worked at a company called Venture First, which is a outsourced fractional CFO company for startups. And so that's where the origin of this company kind of came out of. Uh, they also have gone through fundraising themselves with this company. And so they have a lot of domain experience on the topic of fundraising and financial projections. And so this is a great conversation for those founders that you know either one day want to raise money or are in the middle of raising money or might raise another round uh, because there's a lot of tips that we talked about uh, in this episode. Forecasters raised two point five million dollars just recently and they, before that they raised 750k on their pre-seed round uh, so they have a lot of experience like i said uh, in this topic yeah so our conversation mostly centered around uh, logan's background which was pretty unique so logan actually grew up in nicholasville and went to transylvania uh, and got a degree in economics so not exactly a technical co-founder but found his way into the startup scene uh, kind of through meandering through a couple of different positions and then finding himself at venture first which primarily dealt with startups. So kind of a back-end way to get into the startup community, a lot like what I went through when I was getting involved with startups. Uh, we talk about the origin story of Forecaster. So like Evan mentioned, Venture First played a big role in that. Uh, we talk about their experience raising money, and Logan gave some really good tips when raising money uh, and how to handle those relationships, as well as building a company in Louisville. Um, and before we get started here, as we always do, we just want to get a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Land Betterment. Land Betterment is doing some incredible work throughout Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky as they are taking abandoned strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place. These businesses not only provide a useful repurposing of the land, but they also provide great jobs to replace the mining jobs that were lost when the mine was shut down. To learn more about Land Betterment, you can listen to our interview with their founders, Mark Jensen and Kirk Taylor, on episode 97, or visit their website at landbetterment.com. We're also sponsored by Airwing Ventures. Airwing helps determined entrepreneurs seeking resources to grow with capital and connections in order to build successful companies and impactful legacies. They're all about high-growth companies, high-growth careers, and high-growth communities. I've personally known Dan Beldy for about four years now, and I've seen the work he's been doing in the community, and we should all feel very blessed and grateful that a VC like himself is here in Kentucky. I encourage you to connect with Airwing and learn more. Let's all grow this state together. You can reach out to Dan at info at airwing.vc or dan at airwing.vc. And their website is www.airwing.vc. 
we're sitting down with Logan Burchett, who is the co-founder and COO of Forecaster. And some exciting news within the last month from them. They raised uh, another round of funding. I believe this is your seed round, correct? That is correct. Awesome. Seed round. Yep. Cool. Well, thanks for joining, man. We'll jump into that uh, later in the conversation, but uh, congrats on that. We're looking forward to having a conversation with you. Yeah, definitely appreciate it. Glad to finally be on here. I feel like I probably should have done this a little while ago, but it's good to be here now. Yeah, no, we've been a, we've been chasing you. Yeah, you guys had a good reason for not not being able to join because we talked previously, and that was right before you guys were uh, getting involved with TechStars, right? Yeah, we had our head down for a while. We had we had TechStars, and then we basically were building for a long time, and then we just raised the seed round. So we're kind of coming up for air a little bit. So we're able to do a few of these things, uh, which is which is a lot of fun. It's really good for you know, I, I, I like doing stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dive too far into Forecaster and, and that whole story, uh, let's start with your background. So just tell us a little bit about where you're from, educational background and professional background up until this point. Yep, sounds great. So I, much like I think you guys, I'm, well, I'm a, I'm a Lexington native. So I am actually grew up in Nicholasville, kind of like a suburb, uh, and went to West Jasmine High School. Uh, my mom actually taught at the middle school there. Uh, West Jasmine Middle School. I actually had her uh, in math class, which is which is really cool. But um, grew up in, a, in the area, graduated, uh, and then decided to go to Transy. Um, I come from a long line of folks that went to Transy. My dad went there. Like two of my uncles went there. A bunch of my cousins went there. So uh, basically, didn't have a choice in the matter. Uh, but I really loved it there. Went went there and graduated with a degree in economics. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I just kind of like got economics because I was just interested in it. I seemed to have a knack for it. And it was the one subject that I always could pay attention to pretty, pretty easily and, and really enjoyed the material there. So I uh, did that, could not find a job to save my life right out of college. So like, I think I somewhere still have this spreadsheet. I applied to like 150 jobs or something like that. And now that was back in 2013. And it's not like the job market was necessarily bad then, but like I could not find a job. Uh, so I ended up <clears throat> parlaying my education into an MBA. Um, so graduated, no job experience, went up to Xavier up in Cincinnati. Uh, they had an MBA program there where you could do a full-time MBA, but you could do it at night. So uh, pretty much nobody in the program did that because everybody had a job, but I didn't have a job. So I just went straight up full-time. It was like, Classes were from six to 10 at night um, and they offered them Monday through Friday. So like, if you really wanted to, you could take a full course load, but like nobody did that. And if you did that, then you could get it done in a year. So back whenever I didn't have a job, I went in, did that. And then like a month later, I got a full-time job. Uh, so I was working as a financial analyst at this company called Access Financial. It was a, it's like a middle market company, did kind of payday lending, which is a really sketchy type of thing. Like I didn't, the reason I didn't really stick around there, but it was my first kind of break into into being in a career in finance. It was also pretty hectic because I, I mean, you would work from eight to five Monday through Friday, and then from six to ten, you'd go and and do your MBA stuff. So like I was literally working nonstop. I mean, like I I honestly worked more hours then than I do now, just because I it was just absolutely nonstop. There was no gaps at all. But I got through it, uh, did it in a year, moved back to Lexington, 
uh, and then just kind of bounced around a little bit. Like I, I had a job at a local consulting firm called Commonwealth Economics, um, worked with a guy named John Ferris over there, but I just did that for a few months and ended up going and working for the Kentucky Pension Fund because I thought that I wanted to do big portfolio management. I thought that that was my thing. I wanted to get into stocks. Uh, I wanted to manage a lot of money. So there's really not a whole lot of places to do that in Lexington or really like in Kentucky in general, but the pension fund is like $16 billion. So I was like, all right, I can, I can go there and I can manage a lot of money and that'll be a lot of fun. So I did that for about two years um, and decided I didn't like managing money. I wanted to go into venture capital. That was my new thing. Like I still wanted to do like asset management, but I wanted to go to venture capital. Same problem. Like there's not a lot of venture capital in Kentucky. So I ended up finding a, a firm called Venture First, which was a fractional CFO firm. And that's where I got kind of like my break into startup finance specifically. Uh, that was the first job that I had, I, I think, that I really shined at like like in a, in a big way. Like my other jobs I could do pretty well at, like I was like adequate, like probably like a, like a decent employee. Um, but like, I really clicked with the startups. Like it was just like completely my jam. Like I totally understood their pain points, seemed to be able to have a knack for helping them think through finance and, and all of that. So whenever I started there, I was actually their first full-time employee in their uh, FP&A department. So financial planning and analysis. Uh, they didn't really have any analysts or anything like that to help them uh, coach coach the startups that they were working towards. So I was like the sixth employee. That's actually where I met my co-founder, Stephen Plapper. Um, and like, it was kind of interesting the first time that I met Steven, I told him about this. Uh, if any, if any of you guys know Steven, uh, he does this thing called three piece Thursday, which is he wears, I mean, it's what it sounds like. He wears a three piece suit literally every Thursday. Um, and if you've ever seen him, he's got really, really long hair. He's like a very interesting looking guy. Like, you know, if you're just like walk, like see him walking down the street. Um, so I get in there and at the time venture first was tiny. Whenever I did my interview, there is absolutely tiny. Um, they had like basically a closet for an office and I'm going in for this interview and I open the door and I see this long haired guy that looks like Willie Nelson, just like in a three piece suit, like sitting there, like on his computer, he just like looks up. He's like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Um, and I was just like, what, what is it? Like, who is this guy? Like, I'm just like going into this office and there's just like random dude that like looks like that, dressed like that, ended up having my interview with them and um, ended up ultimately like taking the job. And fast forward, like three years later, me and Steven become really close friends. And um, the company grew like crazy. Like they went from six employees up to like 30 employees. And that's where I like really learned how to work with these startups. And I was working with Steven a lot with doing this stuff, building out financial models, like you know, just really getting in reps as that fractional CFO, as, as that person that was an expert in finance and financial modeling. Um, and at some point, like you can only do something so many times before you're just like, I got to build a software to replace myself. Like it just doesn't, what, what I was doing was starting to not make sense anymore that I was doing it manually. I was building financial models. I was charging these companies to build these financial models. And it would be a scenario where like, I would build a financial model for one company, another company would come along and then they'd want basically the same financial model with like three tweaks. Then I'd like tweak a few things from this model and then sell it to this person. And then I'd do that again. And then I'd do it again. And then I'd do it again. But it was like really inefficient because like the models were out of date as soon as I sold it to them, like they didn't know how to use it. 
it still took a lot of my time to make those tweaks and like it just wasn't very scalable. So I actually came up with the idea of putting it into a software, taking what we were doing manually, putting it into a software. And I kind of like pull Steven over and I, and I told him about it. I was like, hey, like I've got this idea uh, for doing this. And Steven kind of laughs and he shows me a pitch deck for what he called Crystal Ball, which was the exact same idea that I was just explaining to him. So he and I both kind of like came together, uh, collaborated on D and that was kind of like the birth of Forecaster. But I may be getting ahead of myself here. What was, so that was your pain point. Uh, let's talk about the pain points here. So your pain point was you had clients that uh, were asking for the same thing over and over again. And you as this fractional CFO was, were basically re reusing the same models. That's, that's a pain point for sure on your end, you know, become more efficient and just you know, use a software that does it for you. But for the entrepreneur, talk about some of their pain points that you started to realize uh, as you got deeper into this. Yeah, it, it was very obvious what the pain points for the customers were. So the typical sales cycle for our customers would would be something like they would uh, be getting ready for a fundraise and they knew that they had to have projections for due diligence. So like they would come to us and they would ask us to build them a financial model rather quickly just so that they could check these this box for investors. And as soon as it was built, uh, we'd spend all this time and energy and effort building it. They would then have it. They'd show it to the investor. Investment would be made. And then they would never see it, touch it, look at it again. And in most cases, they didn't even understand it well enough to present it to the investors. So like if the investors really dug in to a portion of the financial model and like asked them very like pointed questions about it, most of the founders weren't going to be able to answer those questions. So like it was very stressful for them. It was like a situation where the analogy that I like to give is if you told me to do my taxes um, and I'm not a tax expert at all. Like I don't know anything about taxes, really. If I had to do my taxes and then I had to go and present the taxes that I did to a panel of tax experts and like walk them through line by line, like that's kind of the analogy that I like to give because like I would be really scared to do that. Like I'd be like really intimidated. They're going to ask me questions I don't know. Um, and, and like to make it to further that analogy, it's like if you mess up, you get audited or something like that. Uh, like the stakes are high. Um, so that's kind of the same thing here. And it was something where with these Excel models that we build, our customers didn't know how Excel worked. Our customers don't know how finance works. Like it's a very foreign thing for them. And Excel is not a good tool for them to understand and like know how their finances work. So it was really this big problem of asymmetric information. We would have all the information. We'd give them something that had the information, but then they never felt comfortable with it. And then it would just die on the vine after that. As soon as the fundraise was over, um, they would never they would never see it or touch it again. Yeah, and talk a little bit about you know once you guys have identified these pain points and hatched this idea of this company you guys want to go out and build. You know, both of you guys were were finance guys. You were really in the weeds of what it was going to be doing. How did you guys go about actually building the software? I saw that you have two technical co-founders. Talk a little bit about the process of finding them and actually building the product. Yeah, we we did it in kind of a weird way. Um, not a way that I would necessarily recommend, by the way. So like what we did was whenever we had the idea, we decided that the first thing that we wanted to do was build, which is like essentially take our expertise, take our knowledge and start building. And we wanted to use a, um, like a, a contract firm. We actually used APAC software and this is not in any way speaking uh, badly with APAC. They actually did a phenomenal job, highly recommend 
their services because they did a great job for us. Uh, but I think it was just the wrong move to start building that early whenever we didn't have whenever we didn't have a ton of data. So what we essentially did was whenever we came up with the idea, we were working at Venture First at the time. Um, technically, we were in a situation where we were in a finance, like a financial consulting industry. We came up with this idea for a product that could be considered like competing with the products that we were doing at Venture First. So we went to the CEO at the time, John Shoemate, and worked out a deal uh, with him where he would get equity in the company. We could then spin out and then build the company uh, ourselves. And in that way, we could kind of finance our salaries as we fundraised and as we were like testing the product and all that. It was a really solid deal. And John, John's still a big part of the company today and Venture First is as well. But as a part of that deal, we also negotiated with them to pay for that alpha to get built. It was a, and we, we had a budget of around $30,000. We actually worked with Apex to finance the other 30,000 that it would cost to build on a convertible note. So Apex in a way invested in our company as well and, and kind of like offering some services to be paid on that convertible note. So all in, it was about 60 grand. And we built this alpha. It was incredibly inflexible. It never got any kind of active use, but it at least proved that we could build something that would solve some sort of a pain for financial modeling. So we used that to fundraise. Um, and that's whenever we closed our pre-seed round, the $750,000 round, we kind of used that alpha to fundraise uh, into that round to further build out the software. Um, but to your point, we did uh, then do it the right way and find two technical co-founders that were incredibly talented. And that's where we um, really started humming. The first co-founder that we found his name is Stephen Ams. Uh, he actually uh, was working with Stephen Plappert at Stephen's first company, Fantasy Hub. So for those of you who don't know, Stephen actually started a company before Forecaster that got into Techstars. It was called Fantasy Hub. It was in the daily fantasy sports uh, realm back whenever that was legally ambiguous. And there's a whole other podcast where the story's there, but I'll just summarize it by saying ultimately they ended up failing. But back whenever he was running that company, uh, Stephen Ams was like a super early employee for him. He was, uh, I think he was like not even, he was like 20 years old at the time, went in, did all of their UX, UI stuff, did a lot of like really great work for them. So whenever we had this idea for Forecaster, Stephen was like, hey, I want to approach Stephen Ams, see what he's doing and see if we can bring him on. So that's how we got Ams, who was great. He was the one that designed the app, did all of our UI stuff, did was working with us on UX and all of that. So that's why if you ever use our app, it's really nice looking. And that's that's all the Stephen Anz's credit. The other guy that we uh, that we were able to get on is a technical co-founder. His name is Jonathan Frazier. Uh, Jonathan is a complete like diamond in the rough for Louisville. It's pretty crazy that we actually uh, were able to meet this guy. Stephen actually met him at a startup weekend event. Uh, Jonathan went to MIT, he went out, uh, he went through Draper U out in Silicon Valley. He um, was a professor at the Software Guild. He started a company, for those of you who are familiar with Mailhaven, he was the CTO at Mailhaven uh, for a little bit. Uh, he's just an absolutely rock, he also worked at ReadyApp, which is another startup here locally. So he absolutely rock solid, like probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he is, he, his jam is data. Like he's a big data guy. Like that's kind of like what he's really passionate about. So this, this was a perfect fit for him. Steven talked to him. I met him. We figured that he'd be a great addition to the team. So we brought him on as a technical co-founder as well. 
So it was kind of this really nice um, sequence of events where we built this alpha. Then Steven and I like hit this fundraising trail, got this $750,000 in the bank. As we were raising, we were kind of like negotiating salaries, equity with the, with the technical co-founders, closed the round. They were able to jump on and get paid with the money that we just raised. And then Steven and I were able to come off the payroll at Venture First, come on the payroll at Forecaster. And that's when the company, that's when I consider the company to have officially like actually started. Got it. And walk through, you know, that fundraising experience. Let's transition here because you guys through Venture First and obviously through Forecaster have gotten some great experience, you know, raising venture capital. Um, give, give founders that might be listening to this a sense of uh, what it's like to raise capital, how many people you talk to, you know, being able to accept no's, like walk through that whole experience. Yeah, it was definitely, for those of you who haven't fundraised, it is a crazy, crazy experience. There's really nothing like it. Um, and I was very lucky that Steven, like I mentioned earlier, he had actually started the company and they had fundraised for that company. He had raised like roughly a million dollars for that company uh, before it ended up failing. So he had kind of this playbook that he had discovered whenever he went through Techstars. And so it was a very intentional process that, that we went through. Essentially, we were trying to, I mean, a lot of people probably heard this, this saying that if you ask for... Uh, if you ask for investment, you get advice. If you ask for advice, you get investment. Um, so we were really kind of like took that to heart. And our first step was just talking to all of the local players, right? Like talking to all of the investors. And they're very easy to find in a place like Louisville. Um, you know, you can generally just ask around and you know who invests in startups. So we kind of tried to generate this big pool of leads. So we just had this massive Excel sheet with pretty much everybody that we thought was a potential contender you know, for investment in Louisville. And there's probably 60, 70, maybe 80 names on that list. And then we just started you know, reaching through our networks, like getting intros to people and just setting up meetings. And the first meetings weren't anything to do with, hey, we're fundraising, would you like to invest? Like, you, you never want to kick off a fundraise like that. It's just that it comes at it with like, uh, comes comes at the conversation at a point of weakness. What you really want to do is just start building that relationship. And it's even better if you have a specific problem that you're trying to solve, that you're trying to get advice uh, for in your business. And we were so early, we had plenty of problems. So we had plenty to talk about for like all of these people that were, that were experts at building businesses and investing in businesses. So uh, we did this kind of like round of just, for, for, you know, both of us just like, Hey, I'm Logan. Hey, I'm Steven. Uh, great to meet you. Like, you know, let me tell you a little bit about our business. Let me tell you a little bit about the problems that we're having and all of that, just to like spark a conversation and start building a relationship. Uh, we were very intentional about keeping everybody that we talked to on an investor update list too. So that's a huge tip. Like the easiest thing you can do in fundraising and it like has this massive, massive impact is just keeping like a, a MailChimp list of like, where you can just hit up people and email them, especially, you know, when you're fundraising, but you should really do it basically forever. Um, so we'd get everybody on this list. We'd keep them warm. We'd continue to meet with them, continue to meet with them, continue to build relationships, continue to ask advice, all of that stuff. And we decided to be, um, there's, there's like a little bit of psychology in fundraising where it's almost like if you're selling a house, uh, if you put a house on the market and nobody 
is looking at the house, right? Like if, if you put a house on the market, you have an open house and nobody comes and sees it or like one and two people come and see it, nobody puts out a bid, then the house is not going to sell because people are going to start to wonder, hey, what's wrong with this house? Like if nobody else is buying it, then why should I? That type of mentality. Uh, if you flip that though, and you put a house on the market and there's a line out the door of people that want to come see it, there's like five offers on it that day, then that house is going to go like that. Like any realtor will tell you that. And so it's kind of the same thing with fundraising. If you announce that you're raising and you get all kinds of interest, then the fundraiser is going to close out very, very quickly. Um, if you announce, if you like just start telling everybody that you're fundraising at the get go and nobody's investing, then it's going to go cold and it's going to be a lot harder. So what we were trying to do is kind of artificially create that buzz, artificially create that interest. And the way that we did that was, as we kind of got closer in with, with certain people, we would ask them if they wanted to like soft commit to the round and we were able to round up some soft commitments and we were able to round up like a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars of soft commitments before we ever announced publicly that we were raising. So that as soon as we announced that, we were able to say basically on day one, hey, we were already like a quarter of the way subscribed or something like that. You know, we were we already had some 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 people that had agreed to invest. So it really helped kind of like kickstart that raise um, and get a lot of interest and generate a lot. Uh, and all told, we ended up getting, I think, 27 investors out of that first seed round. That's 750. Wow. So we good how long, rate of mobile. Yeah. How long did you um, how long did you spend raising that? Did you say it was a pre-seed? Yeah. Pre-seed round? Yeah, yeah. So we had a Yeah. That was our pre-seed round. We probably started that in September uh, and then we ultimately ended up closing that in December. So it wasn't as quick as we would have liked. Um, despite our best efforts in creating that buzz, it did work to get us like a lot of like big flurry of attention. So we very quickly went from like 200K in soft commitments up to like four or five, um, but we didn't have enough. We were trying to raise six and over, and, and really in our heads, we wanted to oversubscribe and get up to like 700 or 750. So we were having a hard time closing out the rest, like that last like 200, 200K. Um, and that's whenever uh, the big news hit that we got into Techstars. I think that hit in like early December. And as soon as that news hit, we were fully subscribed in like a week. Um, everybody that was on the sidelines just like jumped right in. Uh, they all decided that they wanted to invest in us. And we, we actually at that point were turning people away, which is really great. Awesome. Uh, what's your number one tip? from uh that experience you know you had mentioned setting up yeah. a mailchimp keeping people updated but what, what was one thing that you took away that you would want to make sure our audience takes away from that whole experience yeah the biggest the biggest tip that i could that i could have with fundraising is just like create a plan and stick to that plan so there are things i think that uh, like there, there are things that work really well with a well-defined process and there are things that aren't that, that don't do well with like a really well-defined process. I think that fundraising is something that if you create a process for how you want to close out the round, like if you like come up with a game plan and stick to that plan, then fundraising becomes a lot easier than if you just kind of go at it, you know, just completely like willy-nilly. Like I talk, I talk to people all the time that um, I'll ask them when they plan on starting a fundraise or like how they plan on thinking through and they're just, you know, oh, we're going to start meeting with investors next week. And we're just going to like ask them if they want to invest type of thing, like people that they haven't met before. And it's just they, they're not very intentional about the, how they go about a fundraise. And I think that if you can be really intentional about it and come up with a good strategy, um, it becomes significantly easier.
Yeah, and you guys are in a really unique position when you're working with these companies because they're probably working with you in preparation to fundraise or they're actively fundraising or have already fundraised and are going on to, to different rounds of it. Um, what are some trends you're seeing in the venture market right now? I feel like right now is a really unique time to be raising venture capital in any capacity. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, definitely seeing a lot of like remote type of work. Um, that, like basically things that enable remote culture, I think is something that I'm seeing a lot of. Like I saw a lot of that even in our in our tech stars class. I mean, there was a uh, a company that was um, kind of like a like a network for remote workers. We had a company called Pangean that was like a recruiting firm for uh, just simply remote people, like the term Pangean being that you can work from anywhere. So it's kind of like this collaborative you know, thing. Uh, but it, it's just like a lot of like anywhere culture is kind of like what I'm seeing. And um, I think that the logically the the biggest reason for that it has to be covid um you know it's kind of like turned so many businesses completely on their heads they are they're having to adapt everybody's having to go remote like all of a sudden and there's just all kinds of interesting new technologies that are coming about to try to help facilitate that all right let's talk about building your company in louisville Uh, you guys are based in louisville um what's that experience been we always try to talk about this uh, because one we want to highlight the good things about this region, but also we want to be you know, constructive and provide constructive criticism to this region. So what, what are some things that, that you've experienced? Yeah. Um, so overall, I'm a firm believer that you can build a great company anywhere. Um, so, you know, we, I, I feel like Louisville gets a lot of criticism about like, you know, it's really, really hard to raise in Louisville. It's really, really hard to find talent in Louisville. And I do think that those are the two biggest challenges that come to mind with Louisville. But, you know, us, for example, we raised our pre-seed round with just really just Louisville investors alongside Techstars, of course. But that was 750000 That was exactly what we needed to jumpstart the company and, and get to where we are today. Um, so I, I think that there's there's good access to capital in Louisville if you're raising a certain amount of money. Like if you're if you're trying to raise a seed round series A and, and beyond, it becomes very, very challenging to raise money in Louisville. And that, you know, that that really speaks to why in our seed round, we raised the two and a half million dollar seed round that we just closed here locally. You, you touched on that earlier. Um There were no major Louisville investors in that seed round. We had uh, some folks re-up from our pre-seed round. So there were some people that wanted to do their pro rata. Um, But whenever we were raising that type of money, we had to go to the coasts. We had, I think, five or six coastal VCs that all came in. Um, It was was led by Resolute Ventures out of San Francisco. Um, And so... We talked to a lot of folks in Louisville um, that we thought, you know, would be could be uh, really, really good folks to invest. Ultimately, though, I mean, the vast majority of our investment came outside of Louisville. So I think one observation is it is it is relatively I don't want to say easy because fundraising is never easy. It's always really, really challenging, Um, but it is much easier to raise probably like a pre-seed round in Louisville than it would be to raise like a series seed and beyond like series seed up into, you know, series A, series B, that type of stuff. Um, so that would be one criticism is like getting kind of like those higher access points to capital. 
Um, and then the other, the other side is that talent aspect is like finding folks, uh, that are really talented, good access to talent here. Um, we were able to find Jonathan in Louisville, like I said. I mean, he was kind of like a, that diamond in the rough, that like special special use case. Uh, but we are building out a completely remote team at this point. We're going to markets like Denver and Austin just because it seems like there's a little bit more talent there. Um, you know, you can get a wider variety of folks there. So I, I feel like those are like really the two biggest challenges that we've seen so far. I'm seeing a lot of momentum around people saying that they're going to go all remote. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how all of that works out. Do you guys have any sort of plans for trying to maintain that culture? Have you guys dealt with any of that yet as you try to, to build out a remote team? Yeah, we have. So a few things about going remote. Uh, we have decided that we are going to go remote, but we're going to take a satellite approach. So we're going to we're going to try to stay around a couple of key markets that we're really interested in, you know, being really close to. So like Denver is a market that we're really interested in just because Techstars uh, was started in Boulder and it's just like a really big startup scene right now. Austin was another one that we really wanted to stay close to because Steven spent a year in Austin and there's a ton of startups in Austin and it's kind of this like booming scene. Uh, so we're trying to be remote, but we're trying to heavily you know point our searches for candidates in those markets along with mobile so we've really got like three different like satellite you know office locations right now they're just kind of like the denver austin mobile there's a lot of like there, there's certainly some pains to the remote culture um i definitely prefer it to being in person all day every day i mean i just feel like that's kind of like a becoming an antiquated way to run businesses I definitely like the aspect of being able to be remote and like have that freedom, be able to like go on a trip or something and work from that trip. From an employer standpoint, I'm definitely feeling a few of the pains from the remote culture. Um, one is if you hire somebody in a different state, you have to be registered to do business in that state, which is just kind of like a administrative burden for anybody that's trying to that's trying to grow a remote team. So like if I hire five employees, and I hire them each in a different state, and I've got to go register to do business in that state, which is like kind of annoying. Um, and there's also, you know, some some tips and tricks that we've picked up, and just trying to keep everybody, um, you know, keep keep everybody kind of like on the same page. So like we we have this challenge where me and Steven are together in the office most days, and we have another analyst that's in our office um, most days. And then you also have other analysts that are out by themselves in Denver or, you know, wherever they are. So one of the things that we at least attempt to do is like always have meetings, even if we're all in the office, keep keep everybody like have their video on. So it's almost as if we're all remote, even though like we're all there, just to like make sure that people aren't don't feel siloed or, you know, out by themselves and stuff like that. Yeah, that's smart. Very smart. Um, all right, let's transition into kind of where you see Forecaster going into the future. We always like ending on a forward-looking statement. Uh, so what's your guys' overall vision for where you want to take Forecaster into the future? Yeah, so we we feel like Forecaster is built in, in really free, three phases. So the first phase is really the phase that we're in right now. So it's just getting a flexible online framework that you can build and manage financial forecasts. So like Think about it as almost like uh, Excel, but in a web app. Um, it's not quite that simple, but it's but it's similar in concept. Like just being able to take the ability to do that 
to do, you know, run forecasts away from Excel and put it into an app. That's kind of where we are right now. The second phase is to take that and then supercharge it with integrations and be able to have your data real time power the forecast, you know, at, at any given time. That's the phase that we're starting right now. Like that's kind of like where we're moving into. We're kind of transitioning from phase one into phase two, which is super, super exciting for us. Um, customers are already liking what we were what we're giving them in phase one. So really excited to see how they react to once we get some supercharged data in there as well. Um, but phase three, which is where I think like the ultimate goal of Forecaster is, is to take the the married up framework and all of the data and then apply some intelligence to it. So be able to analyze the data, be able to analyze the forecast, be able to make real time recommendations to be able to use the network of data that we have to, you know, tell you if your forecast is reasonable or if it's not or if there's something that you need to be looking out for that perhaps you haven't thought of, just really almost becoming that, I don't like to use this buzzword, but kind of that AI CFO is kind of like how I think about it. It's just really using the data, using the forecast to, to actually advise the company. Uh, that's long-term where we really want to make it. That's Got it. awesome. That's super exciting. I, I love leveraging the power of data, I think, especially with something like finances, where it, it can seem so obscure with all these numbers floating around, the more you can condense that into some real actual items. I think that's super exciting. Um, but thanks so much for, for coming on here and joining us. Before we let you go, uh, where can people learn more about Forecaster? And if they'd like to get a hold of you guys, where can they do that? Yep. So uh, go to www.forecaster.co. Um, you can actually apply for the beta if you're interested in using the software. We have a uh, an area in the website where you can just go on and apply it's a short questionnaire and then we we go through those and we set up a meeting and talk to talk to everybody that applies or if you want to just get in touch with me directly you can just email me logan at forecaster.co awesome well logan thanks so much uh this was great and if you guys ever need anything going forward from us anything we can do don't hesitate to reach out all right much appreciated guys it was fun 